Hello everyone and welcome to my final of the mysterious death of Princess Diana. Hope you all enjoy. One very interesting and significant revelation about Diana was that in 1999, after the submission of a Freedom of Information Act request followed by the internet news service Abilene.com, it was revealed that Diana had been placed under surveillance by the National Security Agency until her death, and the organization kept a top-secret file on her containing more than 1,000 pages. The contents of Diana's NSA file cannot be disclosed because of national security concerns, which to me seems really strange, because what could they possibly have on Diana that would be considered so damaging to national security if released. It gets even stranger though because the NSA officials insisted Diana was not a target of their massive worldwide electronic eavesdropping infrastructure and despite multiple inquiries for the files to be declassified with one of the most notable ones being filed by Mohammed Al-Fayed which I'll get into a little bit later the NSA has refused to release the documents. I mean this is the type of thing that fuels conspiracy theories and it does make one wonder what is it that they have in those files that must be kept so secret. Now, in 2008, Ken Wolf, a former bodyguard of Diana, claimed that her scandalous conversations with James Gillaby, commonly referred to as the Squiddygate, were in fact recorded by the GCHQ, which intentionally released them on a loop. People close to Diana believed the action was intended to defame her. Wolf said Diana herself believed that the members of the royal family were also being monitored, though he also stated that the main reason for it could be potential threats of the IRA, which is the Irish Republican Army, which were known for a lot of bombings that they committed during the Troubles, uh, which ended with the Good Friday Agreement, and then there was all the bombings that took place during the 70s and 80s. It was like a whole laundry list of bombings that they committed in Britain and Ireland. So it was a pretty rough time in the 70s and 80s, especially in the UK and Ireland with a lot of the IRA bombings. Now we come to Operation Pageant, which was the British Metropolitan Police Inquiry established in 2004 to investigate the conspiracy theories about the death of Diana, Princess of Wales, in 1997. The inquiry's first report with the findings of the criminal investigation was published in 2006. The inquiry was wound up following the conclusion of the British inquest in 2008 in which a jury delivered its verdict of an unlawful killing by the driver and the pursuing paparazzi, which I don't believe whatsoever. I believe it's a lot more involved than that. The criminal investigation in the United Kingdom was initiated on the 6th of January 2004 when the coroner of the Queen's household, Michael Burgess, asked the then Metropolitan Police Commissioner Sir John Stevens to conduct inquiries into allegations of a cover-up and a conspiracy that MI6, under the orders of the royal family, deliberately caused the fatal car crash in Paris that killed Diana and Dodie. The investigation was legally necessary. Once the inquest into the deaths got underway in the United Kingdom, it became apparent to the coroner that the allegations were being made that a crime had taken place on UK soil, namely conspiracy to murder. Coroners are legally obliged to refer to the police any information or evidence that comes before them concerning a suspected or actual crime. The basis of the information was public statements made mainly by Dodi Fayed's father, Muhammad Al-Fayed. He plays a major role in this whole thing. I think, what was there, like something like 175 conspiracy claims were made by him in relation to the death of his son and, and Princess Diana. The investigation initially was confined to the general premise of the alleged conspiracy, but was eventually broadened to cover every associated allegation made through the media, in legal submissions and informal correspondence since the crash. The level of detail of the investigation is reflected in the report's length, which is 832 pages, which took a team of four 14 experienced police officers nearly three years to compile. Accident investigation experts from TRL assisted the police inquiry. The British police also carried out investigations in Paris because of public interest in Diana, the Metropolitan Police decided to publish the report on the internet, or 
although it had been drafted as an internal police document. The criminal investigation was expected to cost at least £2 million. The cost of the inquiry eventually exceeded £12.5 million, with the coroner's inquest at £4.5 million and a further £8 million spent on the Metropolitan Police investigation. So it was a really costly inquiry, probably one of the biggest inquiries that, that was at that time, because Dinah wasn't just your normal Joe on the street. I mean, she was part of the royal family, so there would have been a massive investigation to find out what happened. Although it really wasn't that big of an inquiry because it turned into an unlawful killing when really I think there's more grounds to say that it wasn't just an unlawful killing by Henri Paul. I don't think Henri Paul was really all that much to blame as much as people say that he was because there's other evidence that I go into later on in this podcast that stipulates that there were other factors at play. Other more, shall we say, sinister factors at play. I think there was a lot more involved in this car crash than it's simply being Henri Paul was a bit drunk and he just in a drunken stupor he crashed into a, a pillar in the tunnel. I, I think there was a lot more to it than that. Each chapter of the report concluded that all allegations made since the crash of conspiracy were without foundation and all the evidence obtained points to the deaths of Diana and Fayette as being the result of a tragic accident which I do not believe at all based on the evidence that I've researched it just does not point to it being an accident. It's, I think it was deliberately done. The script for the 2007 television docudrama Diana Last Days of a Princess borrowed heavily from testimony in the pageant report. Angela Gallop's analysts of Diana's stomach content proved to Operation Pageant that Diana was not pregnant when she died, which I will also go into as well because that was a major part of the conspiracies was that Muhammad al-Fayed, and I'm going to kind of foreshadow a little bit, Muhammad al-Fayed believed that one of the reasons that Diana was killed was because she had Dodi Fayed's child inside of her. And there's been much speculation that the reason, one of the reasons she was killed is because she was carrying Dodi's child. Whether that's true or not, there was never really any evidence to suggest that she was pregnant. There was embalming that was done. And then Muhammad Al-Fayed jumped up and said, oh, well, you basically embalmed her before any tests could be done. But then the medical examiners that tested Diana's body said, well, no, there was no way she could have had a child. She was not pregnant. So there's a lot of speculation over whether she was or wasn't pregnant. But because the embalming was done, it kind of ruined the tests. So there was no way to really test whether she was actually pregnant or not. There's a lot of people that think that she was. There's a lot of people that think that she wasn't. Muhammad Al-Fayed definitely believes that she was. Again, you're always going to have two sides to the story. And you're always going to have two camps. One that believes she was and one that believes she wasn't. So the real question is, was or she wasn't? Unfortunately, that's not really something we can answer. I mean, the doctor said that she wasn't. Muhammad Al-Fayed turned around and said, no, well, she was. The embalming just destroyed any evidence of that. Again, it's a never-ending argument as to whether she was or she wasn't. I, I can't answer that, honestly, because I'm not too sure whether she was or she wasn't. And at the end of the day, there's no evidence left to prove either way. So it's one of those many lingering unanswered questions we have about this case. On the 3rd of April 2007, the Deputy Coroner of the Queen's Household, Baroness Baltasloss, decided to grant access to the evidence collected by the criminal investigation to lawyers for Muhammad Al-Fayed to assist them in putting together their case in support of the conspiracy allegation for the inquest to begin in October of 2007. On the 15th of May 2007, it was revealed by the Baroness Baltasloss that the underlying material collected by the criminal investigation 
Foundation team ran to more than 11,000 pages when printed out and also consisted of more than 1,400 photographs, several DVDs, large size plans and other data. The material was subsequently disclosed to the interested personnel and legal teams. The coroner's inquest opened on the 2nd of October 2007, headed by Lord Justice Scott Baker. The opening statement was largely made up of evidence and findings in the criminal investigation report. On the 7th of April 2008, the jury came to the verdict that Diana and Fayad were unlawfully killed as a result of gross negligence of the driver Henri Paul and the paparazzi. Contributing factors cited included the impairment of the judgment of the driver of the Mercedes Henri Paul through alcohol and that none of those who died were wearing a seatbelt. Which again, I don't believe that. I really don't believe that. I mean, if you read through all the evidence and all the conspiracy theory evidence, I don't think that that was the case. And I, I definitely think that there is a case that there was a conspiracy. And I think that there are things that should have been looked into that weren't. Like, for example, the the French police, when they were investigating, there were witnesses that claimed they saw a bright light in the tunnel, which I'll go into. And they basically discredited all the witnesses. Now, look, if it was one person that said, oh, yeah, I've seen a white flash or I saw a bright flash in the tunnel before the crash, then, okay, the one person you might be able to discredit is one person who claimed they saw something. When you've got two or three people that are claiming they saw the same thing, what are you going to do? Discredit the three people? I mean, it's ridiculous because you got three people that claim they saw the same thing. If it was one person, yeah, okay, maybe the person did or did not see it. When you've got three people that claim they see the same thing and they're independent witnesses of each other, kind of becomes hard to discredit them because you've got three people that saw the same thing and they don't know each other. It's not like they got together in a room and said, okay, this is a story we're going to tell. We can't deviate from it. I mean, witnesses can be unreliable, but when you've got more than one person saying they saw the same thing, it kind of becomes hard to be able to discredit them and say they didn't see the same thing. If they were all telling different stories and all saying they didn't see the same thing and it was all different stories, then you can discredit them. But if they're saying they saw the same thing, then you can't really discredit them as easily. There was also the fact that there was the white Fiat Uno that everyone claimed came shooting out of the tunnel, but the French police were never able to track down. Again, all of these points I'm going to go into in the podcast, I'm just sort of showing that there are definitely different avenues that they could have gone down. There were different suspects that they should have looked into in regards to the white Fiat Uno. But like I said, it was like they tried to bury it or they didn't really want to look into it all that much. Because, I mean, the white Fiat Uno is one of the biggest questions that hangs over this whole case. It's one of the biggest things that hangs over it, and it appears as if it kind of went nowhere. It just fizzled out. And then there was the bright flash, which uh, I'll go into as well. Then we come to Dodie's father, who has played a significant role in fueling the speculation of a conspiracy to have Diana and his son killed. That being, Muhammad Al-Fayyad, born Muhammad Fayyad, on the 27th of January 1929, is an Egyptian-born businessman whose residence and chief business interests have been in the United Kingdom since the late 1960s. Fayyad's business interests include ownership of Hotel Ritz Paris and formerly Harrods Department Store and Fulham FC, both in London. In 1994, in what became known as the Cash for Questions affair, Fayyad revealed the names of MPs who he had paid to ask questions in Parliament on his behalf, but who failed to declare their fees. It saw the Conservative MPs Neil Hamilton and Tim Smith leave the government in disgrace and a Committee of Standards and Public Life established to prevent such corruption occurring again. Fayyad also revealed that the Cabinet Minister, Jonathan Atkin had stayed for three at the Ritz Hotel in Paris at the same time as a group of Saudi arms dealers leading to Aitken's subsequent unsuccessful libel case and imprisonment for perjury. During this period from 1988 to February of 1998, Al-Fayed's spokesperson was Michael Cole, a former BBC journalist, although Cole's PR work for Al-Fayed did not cease in 1998. Hamilton lost a subsequent libel action against Al-Fayed in December of 1999 and a subsequent appeal against the verdict in December 2000. The former MP has always denied that he was paid by Al-Fayed for asking questions in 
Parliament. Hamilton's libel action related to a Channel 4 dispatches documentary broadcast on the 16th of January 1997 in which Al-Fayed made claims that the MP had received up to £110,000 in cash and received other gratuities for asking parliamentary questions. Hamilton's basis for his appeal was that the original verdict was invalid because Al-Fayed had paid £10,000 for documents stolen from the dustbins of Hamilton's legal representatives by Benjamin Powell. In 2003, Fayed moved away from Surrey, UK to Switzerland, alleging a breach in agreement with the British tax authority. In 2005, he moved back to Britain, saying that he regards Britain as home, end quote. He moored a yacht called the Sokar in Monaco prior to selling it in 2014. After denial that Harrods was for sale, it was sold to Qatar Holdings, the sovereign wealth fund of the country of Qatar, on the 10th of May 2010. A fortnight previously, Fayed had stated that people approach us from Kuwait, Saudi Arabia, Qatar, fair enough. But I put two fingers up to them. It is not for sale. This is not Marks and Spencer's or Sainsbury's. It is a special place that gives people pleasure. There is only one Mecca. End quote. Harrods was sold for £1.5 billion. Fayed later revealed in an interview that he decided to sell Harrods following the difficulty in getting his dividend approved by the trustee of the Harrods Pension Fund. Fayed said, and I quote, I'm here every day. I can't make my profit because I have to take a permission of those bloody idiots. I say, is this right? Is this logic? Somebody like me, I run a business and I need to take bloody fucking trustee's permission to take my profit? End quote. Fayed was appointed honorary chairman of Harrods, a position he was scheduled to hold for at least six months. Now we come to the conspiracy theory side of things. So from February of 1998, Elfley maintained that the crash was a result of a conspiracy and later contended that the crash was orchestrated by MI6 on the instructions of Prince Philip, Duke of Edinburgh. His claims was that the crash was a result of a conspiracy were dismissed by a French judicial investigation. But Fayette appealed against his verdict. A libel action was brought against Elfley by Neil Hamilton. The British Operation Pageant, a metropolitan police inquiry that I just talked about, that concluded in 2000 also found no evidence of a conspiracy. To Operation Pageant, Alfie had made 175 conspiracy claims. An inquest headed by Lord Justice Scott Baker into the deaths of Diana and Dodie began at the Royal Courts of Justice in London on the 2nd of October 2007, again, which I talked about, and lasted for six months. It was a continuation of the original inquest that had begun in 2004. At the Scott Baker inquest, Fayad accused the Duke of Edinburgh, the Prince of Wales, Lady Sarah McCordial, her sister, and numerous others of plotting to kill the Princess of Wales. Their motive, he claimed, was that they could not tolerate the idea of the princess marrying a Muslim, which I just want to clarify, that has never been proven. That's just what Elfaid was claiming. It was a claim that was made by him. It was never proven, and I don't necessarily believe that that to be true at all. But it's just one of the many 175 claims that Elfaid came up with. Elfaid first claimed that the princess was pregnant to the Daily Express in May of 2001, and that he was the only person who had been told of this news. Witnesses at the inquest who said the princess was not pregnant and could not have been part of the conspiracy according to Al-Fayed. Now that really wouldn't help your case. If you're claiming that you're the only person that was told something and you can't prove it and then you say oh everybody else around me is not telling the truth because I know what the truth is. You don't really look that credible and you make yourself look like you're a crazy person and it really shouldn't have been the way that Fayed should have should have gone about doing this. He should have said well look I was told this this is what I was told but if you go around attacking everybody that goes against you that doesn't 
doesn't really look good for you because then people are going to go, oh, this guy's a little bit crazy because he's telling us that, you know, we're all crazy conspiracy theorists and we're in on this cover-up. Like, it's not a good look. You, you kind of, when you're in a situation like that, you've got to make sure that you can get across what you want to say without attacking everybody else. Because when you start attacking everybody else, that's when you lose credibility and that's when people are going to start looking at you and going, well, gee, you know, this guy's not really credible because he's attacking everybody and he's saying that we don't know what we're talking about. So it becomes a, a kind of like a balancing act where you've got to try and get what you want to say across and this is what I know without attacking everybody else because otherwise then it can lead to all sorts of problems which unfortunately is what happened to Fayed. He told everybody what he what he knew and then when someone else said oh well, that's not true and this is what actually happened then Fayed jumped in and jumped down their throat. So it's kind of a, it was a very very hostile balancing act between Fayed and the people that be. So it was kind of a like a, um, a seesaw kind of thing you know if I would say something then someone else would jump in and Fahd would jump in again so yeah it's like a boxing match really you know Fahd would throw one punch they would throw one punch you know and it just drew to a stalemate really Fahd believes what he believes and they believe what they believe and there's really it's kind of it's a stalemate if you want to look at it in broad terms because nobody has really come out on top with an actual answer to answer all these questions. There's so many questions in the, the death of Princess Diana, but nobody has ever really been able to answer them. Fayed's testimony at the inquest was roundly condemned in the press as being farciful. Members of the British Government's Intelligence and Security Committee accused Fayed of turning the inquest into a circus and called for it to be ended maturely. Lawyers representing Al Fayed later accepted at the inquest that there was no direct evidence that either the Duke of Edinburgh or MI6 had been involved in any murder conspiracy involving Diana or Doty. A few days before Al Fayed's appearance, John John McNamara, a former senior detective at Scotland Yard and Al Fayed's investigator for five years from 1997, was forced to admit on the 14th of February 2008 that he had no evidence to suggest foul play except for the assertions Al Fayed had made to him. His admissions are also related to the lack of evidence for Al Fayed's claims about the alleged pregnancy of the princess and the couple's supposed engagement. The jury verdict given on the 7th of April 2008 was that Diana and Dodie had been unlawfully killed though the, through the grossly negligent driving of chauffeur on Ray Paul, who was intoxicated, and the pursuing vehicles. Lawyers for Al Fayed also accepted that there was no evidence to support the assertion that Dinah was illegally embalmed in order to cover up a pregnancy, a pregnancy that they accepted could not be established by any medical evidence. They also accepted that there was no evidence to support the assertion the French emergency medical services had played any role in a conspiracy to harm Diana. Following the Baker inquest, Al Fayed said that he was abandoning his campaign to prove that Diana and Dodie were murdered in a conspiracy and said that he would accept the verdict of the jury. Journalist Dominic Lawson wrote in The Independent in 2008 that Al-Fayed sought to concoct a conspiracy to cover up the true circumstances of fatalities caused by the crash involving an intoxicated and overexcited driver and employee of Mohammed Al-Fayed's Paris Ritz. He had remarkable success in persuading elements of the tabloid press, notably the Daily Express, to give the conspiracy a fair wind, end quote. Al-Fayed financially supported Unlawful Killing 2011, a documentary film presenting his version of events. The film was not formally released as a result of the potential for liable suits. Now we come to a very sticky situation, uh, which is the same thing that happened in the case of the cruise with the main suspect in that case because Al-Fayed has been accused by multiple women of sexual harassment and assault which is what happened with Arthur Allen Thomas in the crew case he was tried convicted then he was acquitted and awarded $900,000 then it came out later that there were several women that had accused him of sexual assault and it's before the courts in November same thing kind of happened to Al-Fayed because apparently according to the statements young women applying for employment at Harrods were often submitted to HIV tests 
and gynecological exams. These women were then selected to spend the weekend with Al-Fayed in Paris. In her profile of Al-Fayed for Vanity Fair, Maureen Orth described how, according to former employees, Fayed regularly walked to the store on the lookout for young, attractive women to work in his office. Those who rebuffed him would often be subjected to crude, humiliating comments about their appearance or dress. A dozen ex-employees I spoke with said that Fayed would chase secretaries around the office and sometimes try to stuff money down the woman's blouses, end quote. Al-Fayed was interviewed under caution by the Metropolitan Police after an allegation of sexual assault against a 15-year-old schoolgirl in October of 2008. The case was dropped by the Crown Prosecution Service after they found there was no realistic chance of conviction due to conflicting statements. In December of 1997, the ITV Current Affairs program The Big Story broadcast testimonies from a number of former Harrods employees who all spoke of how women were routinely sexually harassed by Al-Fayed in similar ways. A December 2017 episode of Channel 4's Dispatches program alleged that Al-Fayed had sexually harassed three Harrods employees and attempted to groom them. One of the women was aged 17 at the time. Chelska Hillwood waived her right to an anonymity to be interviewed for the program. The program alleged Al-Fayed targeted young women over a 13-year period. With that, this case remains open, but with many unanswered questions that still remain unanswered. I'm your host, and this has been the Unanswered Questions Podcast. Until next time next on Unanswered Questions. So there was a, a huge prelude to the murders and a lot of strange things began to occur in and around Hinterkaifeck sometime shortly before the attack. For example, six months prior to the attack, the family maid had quit. It has been widely speculated and claimed that her reason for leaving was that she had heard strange sounds in the attic and believed the house to be haunted and felt as though someone had been watching her. 